Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is the Den of Geek podcast, featuring commentary on the latest news from denofgeek.com, as well as other behind-the-scenes content from your favorite movies, TV shows, and more. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and this is episode 16, the early edition of G News for September 2018, in which we cover an item each from movie news, gaming world, and television-related content. Yeah, we each have one of each, which is kind of cool. That doesn't usually happen. And we have an interesting bonus item that's kind of a discussion topic of sorts with Patrick Corcoran of the National Association of Theater Owners. He joined us to talk about the movie theater experience and how streaming interacts with it and isn't necessarily killing the box office takes uh, as some people might think. And so that's going to be an interesting thing to explore with him. But we have a lot of cool news that's coming out in the early fall season, the late summer box office, and a lot of gaming news actually coming out. So let's get right into it with the news from the early part of September. All right, Mike, I was going to start with gaming anyway, but you led me in really nicely there. So if you think about it, there's likely not a gamer out there that hasn't at least tried his or her hand at one of the Call of Duty releases. I mean, even I've tried them, and, <laughs> and as you know, I'm exclusively a racing sim guy. Of course, I couldn't even get off the beach, and after getting killed like 900 times, I finally gave up and went back to the comfort <laughs> of driving in Le Mans prototype at 230 miles an hour down the straightaway at the ring. But that said, anytime you attach the adjective best to a title, you better be able to defend yourself. Yeah, it's interesting that you got killed on the beach right away because I think the Den of Geek guys, John Saavedra and Brian Berman, were on the Twitch channel that Den of Geek has, the live stream, playing Call of Duty Black Ops, <laughs> and John got killed immediately. So don't feel so bad, Dave. <laughs> yeah, now... Calling it the best thing to happen to the franchise in years, Den of Geek reviewer Matthew Bird takes a look at the latest Call of Duty offering, Black Ops 4 Blackout Mode, and discusses the progress the franchise makes with this title. So he takes a look at the game itself, of course, and Blackout is a battle royale game that sees 80 players inhabit a designated field of play that gradually gets smaller as a deadly electric field shrinks the arena. And it's your job to scrounge for weapons, armor, supplies as you fight to be the last player standing. Mm, sounds familiar. <laughs> uh, right. So with the world of Fortnite hovering overhead, that might sound very familiar. And it is to a certain extent. But this is Call of Duty. And the franchise is not going to be satisfied with anything less than being the best at what it does the game favors a slightly more tactical approach to combat that forces you to listen for enemies at least as often as you try to spot them. And when you factor in weapon and ammo enhancements and the availability of nearby vehicles, well, it sounds a lot like player unknown's battleground and 
Yes, it does. So there's no (laughs) getting around that. Well, that's cool because it it sort of is a nice return to the classic, even though Fortnite has taken off in popularity above it. Right. And, And though Blackout employs elements of Fortnite, it's not afraid to go a little crazy. Firefights feel more intense than those in Fortnite, but the title doesn't lose sight of the fact that Battle Royale gamers likely want to just drop in, engage, have fun, rather than look toward a more serious approach to the game and and the player's individual success. So, while this game isn't perfect, Matthew refers to it as the one thing we've seen from a Call of Duty game in the last 11 years that reminds us why we started playing Call of Duty games in the first place. So, Call of Duty Black Ops 4 is out on October 12th for PS4, Xbox, and PC. And for much more about this title, check out Matthew Bird's review, Black Ops 4 Blackout, best Call of Duty update since Modern Warfare. Right. And for those of you who are following Den of Geek, you know that some of the uh, beta codes are being given out on the site. And that's where the live stream came into play with John and Brian. So... Be on the lookout for that, because I'm sure there will be more opportunities in the future before October 12th arrives. Well, I'll go ahead and and dive into gaming news as well, since you did that one. This one's kind of tangentially related (laughs) to video gaming, but it is with Fortnite, similar to your story there. So Fortnite, of course, was one of the first gaming topics that we took on here on the G News podcast. And I even interviewed at the time a couple of my students to find out why they thought the franchise was so popular among their peers. Well, the phenomenon is obviously still going strong, despite Black Ops 4 coming in the picture. And it's been stretching disturbingly in in some cases into the elementary schools. (laughs) The younger kids are getting into Fortnite as well, where Minecraft once held sway. So in that sense, the announcement that Hasbro would be releasing a toy tie-in did not really fill me with joy, but hold that thought for a second. We have a article by Matthew Bird as well called Fortnite Nerf Guns and Monopoly Game Revealed by Hasbro. Well, that's good to know that people still play Monopoly. <laughs> yeah, well, but again, wait until you hear the little twist that they have on this. So with the Nerf Guns, Hasbro says that they're designed to immerse fans into the player versus player action of the game, letting them play out the battle royale in real world settings with blasters and accessories that emulate the on-screen battles Fortnite is known for. And I was like, oh boy. But although it's not clear at this time which weapons from Fortnite will receive the nerf treatment, considering that many of the game's weapons are based on actual guns, then we might be looking at a nerf shotgun with just the Fortnite logo on it. And we don't have a release date on the Nerf guns yet, but they are expected to hit shelves sometime in the spring of 2019. Well, that that seems pretty bold. I mean, in this political climate, I didn't know that was allowed anymore. Yeah, exactly. It'd be one thing if it was like futuristic alien style guns or something like that. But yeah, a little tricky. But it's the Monopoly game that actually caught my eye because it's not just another branded Monopoly experience, according to Matthew Bird. Instead, players will see a battle-building twist to the iconic fast-dealing property trading game. So what that means isn't entirely clear at this time, but the back of the game's box refers to a storm that occurs when you pass go, so it seems you'll somehow need to avoid that or you'll lose hit points. So the back of the game's box also references the inclusion of loot chests, a special dice that lets you 
complete certain actions like picking up health packs, building walls, just like in the game. And the loot chests seem to replace the community chests from the original version of Monopoly. But it sounds kind of cool. It's not just another run-of-the-mill kind of uh, gameplay, so it might appeal to the younger set, but we'll see. The Fortnite version of Monopoly has Fortnite-themed properties as well and up to 27 outfits for the game's playable character pieces. And that game does have a release date of October 1st, so something to look forward to for gamers who like to uh, expand beyond the <laughs> the video screen. Well, I guess landing in jail might take on new meaning, Mike. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, well, let's move over to television. And with the debut of Jodie Whittaker's portrayal of the iconic Doctor in BBC's long-running science fiction series Doctor Who, less than a month away, perhaps it's time for a bit of a retrospective regarding numbers 9 through 12. Now, if you remember, Paul McCann's reign was brief, and 8 appeared only in the 1996 movie. But once the show returned... Showrunner Russell T. Davies made a number of significant changes, including the decision to move away from the half-hour serials that often required five or more parts to complete a story. So with the new reboot, if you will, fans were treated to a standard 43-minute episode. Occasionally, it required two parts, but most of the time, standalone episodes were the order of the day. Now, another change RTD made was with the tenor of the companions who in the classic series often just signed on and the heck with the people they left behind. <laughs> yeah, that is, that was something that kind of bugged me at the time. I remember. Yeah. And here from the start, Christopher Eccleston's Rose Tyler kind of set the standard for those after her, never forgetting that her mother and jealous boyfriend were likely worried about what had happened to her. No, that's, and, what, that's what makes her really one of the classics of this new Doctor Who. Yeah, and eventually they too became part of the narrative, and though Eccleston lasted only one series to be replaced by David Tennant, Billy Piper's Rose and boyfriend Mickey left some fans concerned that Who had become more about home life than time travel. They really didn't need to worry about that, though, Yeah, I don't think as so. things turned out. Now, Tennant's arrival also heralded another addition that would quickly become a staple of the show, and that is the Christmas special, which airs surprisingly, on the evening of December 25th. <laughs> and as Doctor Who established itself through a 13-episode plus the one Christmas special approach, the fan base grew to the point that the BBC felt the show could handle some spinoffs, and the Sarah Jane Adventures and Torchwood followed soon thereafter. I was a huge fan of Torchwood, by the way. Yeah, that was a great show. A little dark for the kiddies, but... <laughs> yeah. Now, following Davies as showrunner would be Stephen Moffat, who had already penned several award-winning scripts for the show, including the now-iconic Blink. And with a new man at the show's helm, it was perhaps time for a new doctor. Tennant elected to hand control of the TARDIS over to his successor, Matt Smith. So Doctor Who, as we all know, is going to make history with its first female doctor when the show returns with Series 11, which is going to air October 7th, 2018 and for much more on the who phenomenon in this retrospective check out chris alcock's piece doctor who reinvention from eccleston to whitaker yeah it's nice to kind of look back on it just before the new season starts and can't wait for that show to come back again in my tv news we're looking at netflix for a little bit because they've got a kind of a spooky lineup planned for new york comic-con 
And I'm headed to New York Comic-Con this year for the second time with Den of Geek. And I get really excited by panel announcements. But for fans of horror, it feels somehow appropriate that Netflix would unveil its lineup, which they have dubbed Netflix and Chills, for the October convention, considering its proximity to Halloween. So last year at this time, of course, Halloween marked the return of Stranger Things for its second season, which had a, a great opening storyline that took place around Halloween as well. But although we have to wait a little longer for the next installment of Stranger Things, Netflix does have some interesting offerings this year. I get it. What are you doing this weekend? Uh, Netflix and chill. <laughs> oh, you you got the pun, huh? <laughs> yeah. Took me a few minutes. Netflix and chills, yes, because at first I thought that spooky theme mostly referred to the network's new Riverdale spinoff, which actually has the word chill in it, and that's The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. But one project I'd forgotten about that also fits that theme is Netflix's new horror series based on The Haunting of Hill House, which will be produced by acclaimed horror film director Mike Flanagan, known for Ouija, The Origin of Evil, Oculus, and Hush. And then I remembered, we mentioned this in an earlier edition of G News because we were mostly focused on the fact that it's going to be starring Carla Cugino. So <laughs> we were both excited about that fact. Now, I have in here, here in my notes that both of these shows are likely to debut trailers at New York Comic Con, but actually The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina just dropped its trailer today as we are recording this. And so that was kind of an exciting preview of that show. But we also have Marvel juggernaut Daredevil appearing at the convention, and that's, of course, nearing the premiere of its third season. But other projects that expect to show some highlights at the convention include the quirky comic book adaptation, which we've also talked about on this podcast, the Umbrella Academy, and a new entry in the Dark Crystal saga from the Henson Company. It's going to be a prequel called Dark Crystal, The Age of Resistance, which will share a first look at the convention. We'll get to... Take a little sneak peek, those of us who are who are there. Uh, hold on. Shouldn't they be working on Farscape? <laughs> yeah. Puppets have a place, right? In <sighs> our hearts, in our sci-fi hearts. <laughs> that's Dark Crystal is a is a really cool uh thing to revisit, I think, though. I'm excited by that. And of course, Kiernan Shipka of Madman Fame will be there with others from the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. And practically the whole team from the Umbrella Academy will be on hand for a panel including Ellen Page, Mary J. Blige, Tom Hooper, and others. And then pretty much every major player from Daredevil will be there for a panel as well, including Charlie Cox, Deborah Ann Wool, and Vincent D'Onofrio, and quite a few more. So Netflix has really brought the chills to New York Comic Con, and can't wait to see what news comes out of that convention. But if you aren't able to make the convention, as I'm sure many of you listening out there are not, you can read more about Netflix's unveiling by reading Kristen Howard's piece, Netflix unveils spooky NYCC lineup. All right, cool. Well, I'm going to finish up with some film news. And when you think about it, Mike, there's a fundamental problem to which virtually all film franchises fall prey. They just don't know when to stop and put the baby to bed. Yeah, that can be true. Alien and Terminator are as guilty as any, but there's little question that Predator and its offshoots need to ride off into the sunset and call it a day. <laughs> now, let's let's go back to the beginning. John McTiernan's original film debuted in 1987 and starred the governor himself, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And while the premise sounds silly on paper, mercenaries versus monsters in the jungle, the film's pacing, 
the cast's chemistry, the deliberate release of information along the way, and even glimpses of the memorably conceived predator itself, whose face we don't even see until the film's final few minutes, keeps the viewer transfixed. Subsequent films in the genre series, however, chose to ignore what made the early films so successful and perhaps playing into modern audiences lack of patience by providing too many reveals too early in the film. Yeah. I remember, I, I seem to remember when we were watching predator in the theaters back in the day that the really cool thing was the effect that they used for its invisibility. And that's what really captivated us and just the suspense that it created. Right now, this time out, the filmmakers immediately introduce us to two predators duking it out in space until (laughs) one of them zips away through a wormhole. Mike, wormhole. Oh, okay. (laughs) Ends up crashing his ship into an Earth jungle. There he makes quick work of two members of a U.S. special ops team, but their leader, McKenna, played by Boyd Holbrook, survives, manages to steal two pieces of predator tech, which he promptly mails to himself at his P.O. box back home as evidence in case he's silenced. You know, perfectly (laughs) acceptable premise in the Predator universe, but the film suffers from too many characters, too many mini-plots that aren't all that compelling, and quite frankly, may not be worth the effort to try to keep everything straight. But if you are a fan of the Predator series, and I know you guys are out there, (laughs) then be sure to read Don Kay's analysis of The Predator, and the franchise as a whole, and his article can be found at denofgeek.com, titled The Predator Review, Time to Let the Franchise Go. Yeah, it's cool to, even though it's a negative review, to see it in the context of the franchise. So uh, with all the reboots and revivals out there, they don't all always work. So I'm going to go with a franchise, though, that might just have what it takes, and there's a very special reason for that. So I'm going with a story by Joseph Baxter called Candyman Remake Reportedly Eyed by Jordan Peele. And this is from that same era as The Predator. So on the heels of Jordan Peele's Oscar winning success with his horror movie Get Out, he may be taking on the genre in a more extended franchise sense as the comedian turned sought after director is reportedly in talks, as I said, to take over the niche horror trilogy Candyman with his production company. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals. You can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role in a given month. Over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Monkey Paw Productions. Although it's unclear if he actually plans to direct, it might just be an acquisition. But for those of you not familiar with the franchise, Candyman is based on a Clive Barker short story 
And the original movie was a mild success in the 1990s, spawning two sequels. One was a theatrical release, and then the third one went straight to video. But the key ingredient is that Bernard Rose wrote and directed the film and chose to recast the evil titular spirit villain as a black man. In in the Clive Barker story, he was blonde, I think. (laughs) And this Candyman was lynched in 1890, having had his hand cut off before being covered in honey and being stung to death by bees. So this is the, the vengeful spirit we're dealing with. So the resoundingly creepy portrayal of Candyman in all three films by Tony Todd is the one thing that I think is going to be hard to replicate. But thematically, it kind of fits. The reinvention as a black man really fits with Jordan Peele's style that he has sort of patented now with Get Out and other stories that are in the works. So Peele has already parlayed his success from the horror thriller Get Out, which earned three Oscar nods and a Best Original Screenplay into a genre run of sorts because he's got a television project in development in Lovecraft country. And he's also got a mini series reboot of the twilight zone. So I like this new career path for Jordan Peele. Would you believe me if I told you I was a Hellraiser fan? I would believe that in a second. I loved that as well. (laughs) That was a big one for me as well. So this development has probably come about because the rights for the franchise, which were originally held by the now defunct Polygram filmed entertainment and distributed by TriStar have recently become available. And so they snapped it up. Doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be in the works right away. And these reports that have been reported by all different outlets, including Den of Geek are just something that is causing excitement for, of, for the anticipation of what could be. And the, the little audio clip that I'm going to include here is of Jordan Peele kind of talking about, the types of movies he likes to do and the horror style that he's known for that will lend itself well if he does choose to do Candyman. I call it a social thriller. You know, it's very uh, inspired by uh, Stepford Wives, Rosemary's Baby. You know, these movies that are, are, are creepy, but, you know, humanity is like the creepiest part at the center of it. Yeah. I mean, that sounds great. I I mean, I, I really liked Get Out. I was surprised I liked it. And well, you know, I'm not going to go to the movies, and that kind of leads into our interview in a few minutes. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I'm definitely interested in seeing this, though. All right, so if you want to read more about that, just check out Joseph Baxter's article, Candyman Remake Reportedly Eyed by Jordan Peele. But yes, you're definitely right, Dave. I knew this would be an interesting topic for you in particular, since you don't go to the, the movie theater that often. So the question becomes, because of streaming services, is it something that has fallen out of favor with movie audiences. Well, in the summer of 2017, this really came to light because the box office did take a bit of a dip. And many were thinking that the movie theaters were finally showing signs of bowing to the affordability and convenience of watching movies. Even now, original content movies on streaming services like Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon. Not so, says the National Association of Theater Owners, Patrick Corcoran, who is the vice president and chief communications officer, he says the movie going experience is alive and well and is in fact growing. So let's take a listen to this very enlightening discussion I had with Mr. Corcoran about this phenomenon. Well, I'm here with Patrick Corcoran, who is the vice president and chief communications officer of the National Association of Theater Owners. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Patrick. Oh, it's my pleasure. 
and we're, I guess we're here to dispel some myths about people abandoning the movie theater experience for streaming services. First of all, why do you think this misconception even exists in the first place? Is it kind of like a video killed the radio star type of mentality? Uh, a little bit, uh, although video did kind of kill the radio star. But uh, <laughs> uh, what, what it is, I think, is, is searching for a narrative. And, and one of the things that's happened is with the rise of the Internet and rise of streaming, uh, it's sort of become this monocausal way of explaining everything. And there are a lot of different things that, that have been happening and a lot of different effects. The, the economy is an effect on uh, movie going and on pretty much everything else. But if, if you look at it from a, a wider view, movie theater attendance was disrupted in 1948 uh, and when television came in. And it grew through that. And there was a, a, a real decline in movie going because it had lost you know, sort of a key driver, which was absolute exclusivity on pre-recorded entertainment. Nobody else had it but movie theaters. And suddenly that was something you'd get in your home. And there was a big fallout from that and a lot of change. But everything since then has been sort of a, a refinement on what that home entertainment experience has been, whether it's been cable uh, television or VHS or DVDs, and now streaming, it's been a change to the home experience, but it hasn't been a change to the theatrical experience. Okay, and that's true. And I guess also last summer's slow box office, which just could be attributed to various releases that happened at that time, people wanted to have a scapegoat for that, I guess. <laughs> They did, and then there's there's been you know that's sort of been a, an ongoing thing that we we have to fight against. It, it's sort of any bad news, any downturn in attendance or box office, is a sign of you know some sort of secular decline in the industry. And any good news is like, well, that was a good movie. <laughs> so what what we want is is a broader view and a longer term view, which is that admissions and box office have been admissions in particular have been very stable and box office has been growing almost every year. I mean, we've, we've had a, about a decade of $10 billion uh, yearly grosses domestically. The last three years have been over $11 billion and we'll be in that territory again this year. And now with smaller horror movies like A Quiet Place and Get Out becoming a more niche experience for moviegoers, not to mention franchises like Marvel dominating the box office, it seems like the theater isn't really about seeing it first anymore. It's about seeing it with others. Would you agree with that? I, I think the two are, are connected, but the communal experience has always been part of it. The, there is a difference, an absolute qualitative difference to seeing something with people and with strangers in particular in a crowd in public than there is in seeing something at home. I mean, filmmakers, when they're making their movie, are aiming at effects based on scale for, you know, the, the large screen in a larger room, but they're also basing it on how an audience will react and how a differentiated audience within that room will react. And that colors your experience. I mean, if things are funny, I mean, it's one thing to see something funny at home and you chuckle to yourself or you <laughs> go back to texting. Uh, it's another thing when an entire room erupts over something that's really funny, or if there's a moment of tension, there's a close-up that suddenly changes your perception of, of a character in a, in a movie. It's different. You feel what the rest of the audience feels, and you gauge and react somewhat to what they're doing as well. And that's always been part of the movie-going experience. And, and uh, you know, you also want to make sure that the audience has that choice by protecting that choice somewhat, because sometimes people will actually make price 
or convenience the most important determinant for whether they see something in a movie theater or not. But when you take that out of the equation for a while, people will think about whether they want to see the movie. Well, that's definitely true. It's, it's interesting because I'm a librarian by trade, and it's the same thing with books. Wanting to have that feel of the paper in your hand is is part of it. The same way maybe popcorn in the hand <laughs> is part of the experience yeah. at the theater. So, But uh, social media has taken full advantage of allowing companies like Fathom Events to bring back older movies that people can re-experience or see for the first time. Are you finding that there's a market for that kind of thing in this age of reboots and revivals on TV and in movies? There is, and it, it's it's ebbed and flowed over the years. I mean, for a long time, there was a, a really strong business in sort of repertory houses and revival houses where you'd have, you know, a, you could program around uh, a genre. You know, you have your uh, film noir night with two or three different movies, and they, they play that way, usually around college campuses. That's one thing that home entertainment, you know, VHS and DVD really sort of killed off in a way. It's harder to get people out for that when they can curate that for themselves at home, which is a terrific thing. One of the other things that happened was that people sort of discovered films that they'd missed in movie theaters. And then when that actor, that director, or that film series comes back in another manifestation, then they go see it in the movie theater. And that, the two fed each other for, for quite some time. But what you have now, with particularly with the digital projection and, and networking of movie theaters, you have that opportunity to do one-offs and do things across the country, you know, on one night and really gather the audience and make it an event. And and that's one of the things that that Fathom does with that type of movie. Yeah, I've I've personally been enjoying that particular phenomenon. Uh, now, one thing I haven't taken advantage of that I've heard good and bad things about is. Uh, subscription base. So like MoviePass obviously ran into trouble with its subscription model, but it may have pushed the industry into a direction that seems to appeal to moviegoers if AMC's new $20 a month is any indication. What are your thoughts on this trend? Yeah, there's always a value-conscious consumer that's part of the equation that movie theaters have tried to figure out, and there's always been sort of a range of pricing throughout the day and for different age groups and, and during the week. Uh, you know, on Tuesdays around the country, there's sort of a value Tuesday idea, and that's brought in a different audience or it's expanded the audience. And that's always the concern, whether when you do a, a subscription or you do some sort of uh, value conscious pricing, whether you're just shifting attendance from a higher priced weekend show to something during the week or or something that's through a subscription. So the key is to make sure that uh, any program like that is one, sustainable, Two, that it grows the pie. In other words, you get more moviegoers and don't just move them around to different pricing structures, which I think has been the big concern about MoviePass, that the, the pricing made so little sense and that it was so unsustainable for them because they didn't really have a way of cutting their costs other than getting movie theaters to join in, and they hadn't convinced movie theaters to, to join in and cut prices to them. So it was it was difficult for them. But there is an interest in that. Uh, it's something that's been done in Europe for quite some time. Uh, it's been talked about here. It's a little difficult to get all the moving parts together, you know, the movie theaters and the, and the distributors together and to work out a sustainable way of doing it. But what MoviePass has shown is that that customer is out there and the, the key is to structure a program in, in, in the best possible way to fulfill that need, but also to keep attendance up and profits up at the same time. 
Now, although ticket prices have fluctuated somewhat, theaters have also added things like assigned seating, luxury lounge chairs, things like that. What have been some of the more successful incentives that have appealed to audiences, even if they had to pay a bit more? Well, there, there's there's a lot, and then there's a range of audiences. You know, people always say, well, the audience, and there isn't just one audience. There are a whole bunch of different audiences. And like that value customer, you have customers who want more amenities, who want more luxury, who want a higher level of service, who want an upgraded audiovisual experience. So you have things like IMAX and the premium large format theaters that are branded with each company. The recliners are, are a case in point because those are related directly to uh, reserved seating. Because for whatever reason, here in the U.S., reserved seating was always resisted by most audiences, and it may just be a sense of, you know, we're all small-D democratic, and we, if we show up to the start of the movie, we're all going to have the right to get to the seat that we want. And so it was resisted. But once the uh, luxury seating came in with the larger recliners taking up more floor space, meaning fewer seats, it meant shows were more likely to sell out sooner and people became more accepting of that reserved seating. And and it's having the effect of actually pushing some of the viewing into earlier parts of the week. So, you know, if the weekend is sold out, you're seeing more on Mondays and Wednesdays and, and on other days. But there are a lot of different things that audiences want. Some of them want that prime, pristine, huge screen, big sound experience. Some of them want, you know, some chicken fingers <laughs> and others want uh, you know wine and beer and cocktails and then there's uh, that whole range you know is being offered to customers from the equivalent of like a chili's to something that's more like a, a chef driven cuisine it depends on, on where you are and what market you're in yeah it, it just reminded me when you were talking about that that about a decade ago i went to london and i remember thinking oh the Seats are assigned. How strange. Yeah. <laughs> and now, of course, that's commonplace nowadays. But you brought up food. And I have to ask uh, the question I've always been curious about. I don't know if it's a myth or not, whether or not theaters make a majority of their money from concessions. Is that true? Well, they make a higher percentage on concessions than they make on the movie ticket itself. And, and it varies across companies. But if you look at the, the publicly traded companies that report their, their film costs, they're generally in the 55% or so goes to the distributor. And it's higher or lower depending on the movie and depending on what the theater company is. On concessions, the Profit margin is closer to 90%, depending on what it is, and less on the, the restaurant and alcohol service, because that has to be more in line with what restaurants are charging. Well, clearly, I think we've made the argument that theaters are far from dead, and streaming is not going to dig into the theater experience. So um, is there anything else that we need to mention for our listeners that maybe they should keep in mind when, when they're thinking along these lines? Yeah, uh, re related to that last point, uh, we conducted a study with Ernst & Young to look at the behavior of consumers, people who stream a lot and people who go to the movies. And what we found and what that study found was that people who stream a lot in the home go to movies a lot. And there's a direct correlation. The more they stream, the more movies they go to. And, and it's basically people like entertainment. They like art. And if they like it, they want to go see it wherever they can see it. And they, they have different uses for it. Uh, the two complement each other. And it, and it goes across demographics in terms of age. It goes across ethnicity. It goes across um, income. You know, the more you stream, 
the more you go to movies and vice versa. I would have to agree with that. I'm, I'm glad we were able to speak about this topic because it's definitely one that I've always wondered about myself. So thank you so much, Patrick, for talking to us today about the movie theater experience and how it's alive and well. It's my pleasure. Thank you. All right. I think that was very well argued and I really enjoyed talking to Mr. Corcoran about the movie theater experience and how, you know, sometimes you just have to have the popcorn sitting in a large room with a bunch of strangers. <laughs> and, and I get that. I really do. And I understand that I'm in the minority. And a lot of times I wish I wasn't, you know, because I remember it being fun being in the theater and everybody reacting at the same time. <laughs> and of course, now that we have assigned seating and lounge chairs, all that stuff, I think it's definitely taken some of the headache out of the experience. But Mike, the, the problem I still face, though, is my wife. What did he say? What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think uh, the National Association of Theater Owners can help you with that. <laughs> no, they can't. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that little bonus content and the news items that we had to share with you today. But that's it for this installment of the Den of Geek podcast. Join us again in two weeks for the September 2018 late edition of G News, when we'll hash out the latest from denofgeek.com and share some more behind-the-scenes content from your favorite TV shows, movies, and more. And if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and now Spotify. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.